0: statements expressed in the following program do not necessarily reflect those of WWDB, its staff, or management. Good day, everyone. Welcome again to another edition of Boomer Generation Radio, coming to you live from the studios of WWDB AM 860 here in Greater Philadelphia and streaming live on WWDBAM.com. Uh, we welcome you to what we hope is uh, another exciting and interesting and informative uh, show here this morning. Um, and a reminder to all of you that that if you would like to uh, send in a comment or question or suggestion for the show, you can email me directly at Radio at com. That's Radio at gmail.com. And we're uh, very... Uh, Happy to welcome as our first guest on today's edition of Boomer Generation Radio, I hope, uh, calling in from, I hope, beautiful, sunny Tampa, the Tampa area, Dr. David Bernstein. Dr. Bernstein, are you there? Yes, I am. Hey, thank you, Tony. <laughs> uh, nice to talk with you. Nice to talk with you. How are things in uh, Florida today?
1: Uh, they're a beautiful, sunny day with a little chance of rain.
0: Yeah, well, we have... Um, and not-so-beautiful, not-so-sunny day with lots of chance of rain, especially after last night. It was crazy up here, crazy. Anyway, thank you very, very much for joining us, um, Dr. Uh, David Bernstein, a gerontologist and author uh, of a very interesting book called I've Got Some Good News and Some Bad News, Your Old Tales of a Generation, What to Expect in Your 60s, 70s, 80s, and Beyond, which is a a very long title for a very interesting book. So welcome, and thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you. I appreciate the invitation. So
0: Sorry. I guess the first easiest question is what, what motivated you to write this book? You're a gerontologist and practice in the Tampa area, correct?
1: Um, I, there were many things that motivated me, having all these stories swirling around my brain um, for these many years of experiences that I've had, and and seeing sort of a gap between what I knew as a geriatrician and what I saw my either my contemporaries doing in their lives and how it affected them and how their how they addressed their their parents' lives and how I had to deal with you know my patient, my parents aging. Um, I also think back to when I was a graduating high school. The keynote speaker uh, had graduated ten, ten years earlier, and he became a writer. And I said, one day, I want to write a book. Mm-hmm. And as you go through the practice of medicine and and various things in life, and, and encountering people, much like you have, people, and you you say to yourself, I got to write a book about this, or you know, I got to share what I've learned, or tell those funny stories that, <laughs> that I've heard or those stories that made me cry or made me emotional, and they just swirled, and one day they just came out, and I just wrote it.
0: That's great. That, that, that's really I, I, um How do you, just let's get this uh, right up front. How do you get a hold of this book? Is it uh, Amazon? Uh, it's
1: available on Amazon. Uh, there's a paperback version and a Kindle edition, and I'm actually working on an audio version as well.
0: Oh, cool. Oh, cool. So um, I pick up the New York Times yesterday and uh, see this article that talks about the AARP and this rather uh, interesting and somewhat uh, amazing statistic uh, that the AARP is quoting that by the end of the year 2014, which I think is this year, so in other words, in about six months from now, every living person um, of the baby boom generation will all be over the age of 50, which is a really kind of sobering statistic. Um from your perspective and your practice, uh, given this reality, what, what do you see as the implication for uh, your practice, for health care, for uh, what's going to be going on with this whole expanding generation now over 50?
1: It, you know, you could spend days talking about it. And I know you've devoted your your career to this. It, it, it's, it's an amazing number of people. Uh, it's, it's a very diverse group. Um, they some still have parents who are alive, which means their parents are in their 80s and 90s, and they're sandwiched in the generation of their kids. Many of these are helicopter-type parents that hover over their, have been intricately uh, relate, relating to their kids over the years. Um, some have really devoted themselves to their own well-being and health. Um, some not and some have devoted themselves to some spiritual aspect of life and many not. It's a very diverse group, but they're all getting older. Um, They probably have more diseases they face than their parents do, so they may actually have less, shorter life expectancy than their parents. Really? They didn't take as good a care of themselves. They They didn't walk, they didn't exercise, they didn't eat as well, many of them.
0: Wow.
1: I, I just came across some article that that you know and, and as i'm writing my next book and thinking about things it's you know the that baby the the post the post war pre baby boom generation had to walk to work they had to walk to the subway they they worked in agriculture they worked all the time. Our generation took cars we don't use mass transit we don't walk as much uh, we sit more. We're we're in more service business and oriented than we are in um, agriculture and building, and it's the whole demographics has changed, and and we're not as healthy. We take a lot more medicines, and we have a lot more vices. I think.
0: Well, yeah, it's amazing you mentioned because uh, I, I remember talking to some people in Manhattan a couple of years ago. Um, uh, people who retire, I guess they were in their eighties. And they walked everywhere and because I was talking to them about this. And they said, well, we don't need a car. We don't want to move out of Manhattan. Everything's within walking distance that I need. Or if we want to go to the theater or down, you know, to someplace else or to a film series, we just take a subway. Uh, and, uh, you know, you go to Europe and you see people who they don't have the infrastructure in many ways as, as some cities. And they walk everywhere. I know when I lived in Los Angeles, the idea of actually walking with people looked at you as if like you were talking some like uh, Klingon, you know, yeah. so it's like why, why would you walk when you could take the car 10 minutes or five minutes down the street? Uh, so I, but there's a mythology. Is there not that the baby boomers are sort of like more aware of our own health, but yet you're saying that um, we may not be as healthy as we want to think we are?
1: That's my my observation. And it's a limited scope as you remember I'm a geriatrician so I'm not mm-hmm. seeing as many of young people and seeing what they're doing. Some are doing great, some are doing poorly. Some are relying on their statin medications and getting a heart stent rather than putting in the work, exercise, diet and so forth to get where they need to be. Uh, getting back to one of the questions you ask is some of my motivation. Some of my motivation were what happened to my grandparents and watching my mother deal with that as, as, as they aged, in a, in a sense, they were my models. I mean, they are my models because they had great genes, and they lived pretty close to 90. Mm-hmm. They walked everywhere. My grandfather worked for my father and took the subway from uh, Queens, Jamaica, to Manhattan, got off the subway and walked to the factory, worked in the factory, went back down and reversed that, and he put in a lot of steps every day. And, and that was typical in that generation.
0: So there's a, there's some, um, the, the issue of walking, I just want to just pursue this for two or three th- seconds because uh, there's just an increasing amount of, um, articles and stuff coming out about the positive value of exercise and nutrition, exercise and nutrition, not necessarily relying everything on the pill. So, uh, you know, uh, uh, on medication. So the idea of just getting up and walking, uh, I know in, in, the Jewish tradition of Maimonides from the 12th century was a, just basically wrote a whole paragraph on an essay about uh, preservation of youth and talked about ec- the, the need for ec- bodies staying in motion and exercise and aerobic exercise. I actually wrote about it. Mm. Um So when you talk to people in their seventies, eighties and nineties, uh, do you, is this part of the conversation if they're obviously mobile enough to do this?
1: yeah um so, some are incredibly active and and some are incredibly sedentary and i don't think you can change a sedentary person maybe it's a body in motion stays in motion a right. body at rest stays at rest many of my patients are really quite active and and sometimes and most of the days that i go to my gym and i work out i see older people there Unfortunately, I see the same older, older people there all the time, mm-hmm. and I don't see necessarily a, young, a newer crew, but but people who take good care of themselves and just stay busy and stay active uh, are leading a much healthier life, life. And, and that's most of what my job is about.
0: Yeah, this exercise in nutrition, I just, and I just want to pursue one more thing uh, on, on this because you raised it, and it, it's somewhat fascinating. There's also a report now uh, today and last couple of days is this recent convention or conver- uh, uh, meeting in, I think, Denmark dealing with Alzheimer's. And, right, um, I some of the information. Right, that, that there's a feeling now that uh, one of the preventive uh, approaches to delay the onset of Alzheimer's may be a combination of exercise and nutrition and lifestyle change. Have you come across any of that or do you uh, – Subscribe to that
1: i do and and it, it is something i'm kind of juggling with as i put my thoughts together for what i want to write next but there there are ways to preserve your brain and it's really fascinating information and diet is one of them and i believe the most diet is going to look like a mediterranean lower carbohydrate diet hmm. increasing your physical activity um, maintaining your uh, proper weight, and a third part of that, and I might come up with five S's for this, but uh, and a critical part of that is sleep and getting proper sleep and rejuvenating sleep, and people don't like to hear this in my office when I talk about it, but they need to be evaluated for whether or not they have sleep apnea, because sleep apnea basically suffocates your brain at night when you're sleeping. And how do you expect to have a healthy brain if you're constantly suffocating it? Wow, you know it's kind of like you whoever you're sleeping with takes a pillow and puts it over your face multiple times a night, sometimes fifteen <laughs> or twenty times an hour. Well, you're going to be sluggish and your brain's not going to operate very well so and uh, people are resistant to the whole idea
0: really I, 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 I don't think I, I, a lot of sleep sounds wonderful to me. <laughs> Yeah, but how much do you do you prescribe? I mean, do you prescribe? Do you suggest a, a number of because I I've seen some new new studies on sleep studies and how important sleep is uh, to people, and that we and that Americans don't get enough sleep.
1: Uh, they need seven or eight hours of sleep, and and I fall short of that some nights myself. And as a physician practicing for over thirty years, I know I was sleep deprived for many of my years. Right. Just uh, had a lot to do and went to bed late, got awakened in the middle of the night with phone calls, had to get up early to get to the hospital to get to work. And uh, I regret what I did to myself, knowing what I know now. Um, I work on getting my seven or eight hours of sleep, and uh, I encourage my patients to do the same. Wow. And, you know, think about the... The downward spiral that a patient and their family has when when they get memory disorders and Alzheimer's disease—they don't sleep well. They're up in the middle of the night. Their uh, their day night gets all mixed up. They're, now their partner is is involved with that, and and they're sleep deprived, and and things just spiral out of control. I'm sure you've seen that in your career and in, in what you—oh,
0: absolutely, absolutely.
1: You know, and it's like, how am I going to stop this pattern? Really hard.
0: We're speaking with Dr. David Bernstein, uh, the author of I've Got Some Good News and Some Bad News: Your Old Tales of a Gener- Geriatrician, What to Expect in Your Sixties, Seventies, Eighties, and Beyond. We'll be back with Dr. Bernstein in a moment. But um, I want to mention a very good friend of uh, Boomer Generation Radio again, uh, someone who brings a lot of clarity to some of the financial decisions that all of us have to make. And I'm speaking of the HECT Investment Group of Johnny Montgomery Scott. Uh, the HECT Investment Group provides concierge financial consulting and planning services. They're using a formal investment process as their foundation. Uh, their clients receive frequent communication and rapid response to questions. And as many of us know, there are no needs greater than your own when it comes to personal financial planning. The HECT Investment Group provides experience, guidance, and an efficient, efficient management process that is important in today's environment. We urge you to contact the Hecht Investment Group toll-free at 855-289-2168. Mention uh, Boomer Generation Radio. That's 855-289-2168 or visit com. And the Hecht Investment Group is also on Twitter, LinkedIn, and on Facebook. And we're very happy to, again, report to you that Peter Hecht was recognized by Philadelphia Magazine and New Jersey Magazine as a five-star wealth manager for 2013 and 2014. And Jannie Montgomery Scott, as many of you know, is a member of the New York Stock Exchange, FINRA, and the SIPC. That's Jannie Montgomery Scott and the HECT Investment Group, bringing clarity to your financial uh, profile. Again, back with Dr. David Bernstein uh, on Boomer Generation Radio, coming to you live from WWDB 860 AM in Philadelphia and streaming live on WWDBAM.com. Dr. Bernstein, in the book, uh, you talk about this uh, acronym GRACE, Grace. Could you walk us through what that means and what it stands sure. for?
1: My process of evaluating and talking to my patients who've lived this longer, happier, healthier life, um, it it was as if I did some group discussions and and panel discussions with lots of these adults. And when I would ask what were the features that led to this longer life, they continuously came up with the same five items. And, And G, in gray, stands for goals or having a purpose in life. And doing something, doing something at work, doing something with your family, having some purpose when you get up every morning is just so important. And patients would tell me stories about what that activity was in their life that kept them going and how important it was. Uh, R in root, in gray, stands for roots, and it's your DNA. It's, it's knowing what your roots are, and they may be spiritual roots, but also your DNA. And even if you have bad DNA, you can still address your DNA. So if there's heart disease in your family or high cholesterol or diabetes, you you take the steps to address that and prevent that disease from being hazardous for you. A stands for attitude. It also stands for um, being adventurous. And And I lump gratitude with that. And gratitude is just so important for people. And um, even in the Ten Commandments mentions, thou shalt not not covet thy neighbor or thy neighbor's wife. That's all about being grateful for what you have. And my patients who express their gratitude uh, feel so good about themselves and their lives. C is extremely important, and it stands for companionship or connections. And having companionships, both intimate companionships with a spouse, but also companionships with friends and family and and tightening connections leads to this this length of happy sense of happiness and and better health and And to digress for a minute, one of the things that that's also incorporated into what helps patients with dementia is having companionship and connections and and having a community of people to communicate with. And E, in my acronym, GRACE, stands for environment. And I lumped a lot of things in environment. So environment is diet and exercise and and meditation and sleep, as we talked about, Um, and listening to your doctor's advice. So that's part of interacting with your environment. And those are the five traits that that I've discovered that are easy to remember that lead to uh, a healthier, longer life.
0: So let me pursue some one or two things, if I may. That the, the DNA thing is fascinating because it's so many people are becoming more and more aware of it. Um, are we a prisoner to our DNA? I mean, or do we have a little bit of leeway? I mean, where our genes are, our genes. We we can't control that yet. But you allude to the fact that there are ways to to deal with it
1: but that was really well put. You're basically a prisoner to your genes. However, with good behavior, prisoners get out of jail earlier and prison earlier. Um, so uh, with that in mind, there have been the development of medicines for diabetes and medicines to lower cholesterol and blood pressure and, and delay the onset of the conditions that, that ultimately lead to more, more illness and death. So there are things that we can do, and certainly if obesity runs in your family and you have the obesity gene, uh, do something about it, even if it's, even if it's drastic like surgery. Uh, but taking statins for hyper, high cholesterol are very effective. The interesting thing about, I, I didn't discover this, but my observation in life, and, and I'm sure with the work that you've done over the years, even behavior, and, and mental illness are associated with genes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have two children, and one has the behavior and personality of his mother, and one has the behavior and personality of the father. So, I mean, it's crystal clear. And, and when I have the good fortune of taking care of three generations in my practice, uh, I've taken care of, as an example, a man who lived to be hundred and I've taken care of his daughter for 30 years, and she started with me when she was 60 and she's 90, wow. and I've taken care of the granddaughter, and I see the same behavior among the three of them, then I'm very careful not to point out, well, you're being just like your father or you're being like your mother. But but I can see how how behavior and personality uh, is translated in genes as well.
0: Yeah, wait till you have grandchildren. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, you'll you'll really that will become crystal clear (laughs) very very quickly. Um, Under the environment that you you mentioned, meditation uh, there there seems to be just such a rise amongst boomers too about um, the use of meditation or meditative practices to uh, health on healthy aging issues and mental health issues and also physical. Have, Have you run across this in your practice you mentioned in in the grace acronym and do you prescribe meditation to patients
1: i I have for a really long period of time although the generation the the post-war um the the pre-baby boom generation Mm -hmm. are are not a group that's particularly who are my patients but they're not particularly into meditation however over the years i've read about it it and tried to incorporate it into my life as well I believe the baby boom generation is more inclined to do it. Meditation started to be a focus uh, when I was in college in the 1970s. So, so and that's a boomer generation we right. were in college around then. So it was it was a practice, and it was introduced then. Um, there was a really interesting book written by Herbert Benson. Right, it's about 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. It's one of the best examples of how meditation and how that's the science of that. Um, real and he stuck with doing that as, as his career um, and it took away the this the sense that this was um, from a different culture either Indian or or Asian uh, culture and and made it more Americanized or made it more you know here's what happens physiologically when you meditate and it's it's not a religious type thing and, no. and uh, uh, I think boomers have embraced that uh, more than the older generation.
0: Oh, there's no question about that. Yeah, and more and more and more. In 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 the book, you have this uh, very interesting comment that um, the conversation of taking the keys away from your older parents about driving is the most difficult subject a child can raise with their parents. Even more difficult than talking about funerals or end of life decisions. Can you comment on that? That's a great great uh, great paragraph that you wrote
1: children children are paralyzed in dealing with this issue with their parents and it's it's phenomenal it, it's just amazing that they can have oh yeah a great relationship with my parents but i can't take away their keys <laughs> um, i it it's unexplainable i don't i don't i don't really get it myself and um, they almost want them to have a minor fender bender so they don't have their car and they don't want to approach it. They they take every avenue away from approaching it It, it, head-on. Maybe it's like, well, he changed my diapers or she changed my diapers. She'll never listen to me about driving. Or, you know, she drove me everywhere. I can't take those keys away. And the consequences are devastating. And, and they just – it's really a cop-out in terms of dealing with it, and it isn't easy. Believe me, I, I talk about it as if it was the easiest thing to do. It's not.
0: Oh, no, no. If those of us who have had to do that know that it's not an easy thing to do at all.
1: It, it's taking – it, it's visualized visioned as taking away their entire independence, right. their entire life. Right. Breaking every connection they have, they can't even go to the you know the things the excuses that that my patients who shouldn't be driving tell me. I just go to the grocery store. I just go to the hairdresser. You're the only person I come to see. You're the only person I drive to. But you know it's like you can't see out of your left eye. You can't turn your neck. Your reflexes are slow, and you're 90. You can't be continuing to drive, and they've they've enabled themselves to be in an environment where they must drive. They haven't moved to a retirement community where driving is available. Um, unless you live in a big city, there's limited mass transit so that there's not an opportunity to, say, well, go on the bus. Mm-hmm. And uh, cabs and DART and all those other kind of public transportation are, are hard to use. And, and it's a spoiled generation where they always have their car, and they can't wait for a cab, and they don't want to be tied down. And I hear every ex- excuse in the book, but I see some terrible people driving.
0: Do you ever tell them just point blank? A, a patient, uh, let's say an eighty-eight an year old person who has what you've described. Do you ever just point blank sit down in your office and say, for your, uh, if you want, to, you just can't drive anymore. You are a danger to yourself, and you're endangering everybody else on, you know, Route Nineteen.
1: You know Route Nineteen. huh? Y- yeah. Um, well. Yes, I do, um, I, and I have to. I, I have to say that sometimes I cop out myself. However, here's my most recent experience, and and it, it's an interesting one because number one, he's one of my friends. He happens to be an older friend of mine, but there's a group of us who get together, and he's the oldest in the group, 81, who, who's getting dementia, and was in a little fender bender, and had been going out while his wife was at work, and going places that he couldn't even explain why he was going over to Tampa for a sandwich. I mean, things that didn't make sense. And he had this fender bender. And my response was, okay, if you think you can drive, I'm going to send you to a place in this, in this town. It's not far. It's associated with a hospital, and you'll have a driving test. Actually, it's more of a computerized driving evaluation, and it, it will give me a result and indicate how likely it is he will pass or fail a road test. And so I agreed with him that uh, he would go and do that, and we would abide by the results of the testing. I I know I will be speaking to him at his appointment later this week, (laughs) and I will be basically telling him, I've already told his wife, that he failed the test and that he's not going to be driving anymore. And as a doctor, I have to confront that and just say no more. You cannot drive. You're at a risk. Your wife is here. Your family's behind me, and you're not driving anymore. And we'll put into place whatever kinds of transportation needs you have so you can get from place to place, but you're not driving anymore.
0: Dr. David Bernstein, uh, uh, the author of I've Got Some Good News and Some Bad News, Your Old Tales of a Geriatrician, What to Expect in Your 60s, 70s, and 80s and Beyond. Dr. Bernstein, before we run out of time for this segment, uh, again, how does somebody get a hold of this book?
1: Uh, it's available on Amazon, and I do have a website, and I encourage people to visit my website and, and sign up for my newsletter and read my blogs because I address some of these things as they, they come up. Every couple of weeks I write a blog that, uh, about what went through my mind for the prior couple of weeks, and um, something new comes up all the time.
0: What's the website? What's My the website
1: we- is
0: www.davidbernsteinmd.com. David com. w david md .com um, last question so in your practice um, dealing with this generation of 60s 70s 80s and beyond to to look at the subtitle of your book uh how important it is it when you're talking to people about their their life moving forward? there's a sense that these individuals come to you and say, "You know something dr. Bernstein, I realize at this stage in my life. Um, I have to let go of the regrets I have to let go of the what ifs of my life uh because if i don't it's going to it's 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 a negative. I just want to live for the day I want to live just to be with my friends, my grandchildren." but it's time to let go of all that stuff. Does that come up any time?
1: My patients know that there's that little spiritual part of me um, that I'm available to talk to them about. Um, no, it it doesn't. However, ah. it it did for me as I was writing my book. Ah. So it was a cathartic thing for me. And, and I and I do approach it a little bit differently because the emotion of regret is a horrible emotion, and and I, rec- I I make it a point with my patients, at least from the medical standpoint, of 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 approaching it so things don't turn into regret. I'll, I'll do it medica- medicine wise, but I'll say, you know, there is a possibility you can have this condition, and we ought to go through this line of testing. Right. And they say, no, I don't really think that that's necessary. And what I'll point out to them is I-, I want you to consider the fact that I don't want you to have any regret that you didn't do this. It-, it doesn't even mean an operation. It means let's do this scan or let's look into this and consider this because years later, I don't want you to have the emotion of regret. Thank you. So regret does come up mm-hmm. for me and my practice, but but slightly different than you
0: described. Well, I appreciate, I appreciate you sharing your own personal journey with that because that's, that's very, very insightful. Dr. David Bernstein, the author of I've Got Some Good News and Some Bad News, You're Old, uh, available on Amazon. Uh, the subtitle of this is Tales of a Geriatrician, What to Expect in Your 60s, 70s, 80s, and Beyond. Dr. Bernstein, thank you very, very much for joining us here on Boomer Generation Radio. Keep in touch. I hope to speak with you soon and and uh, take care Uh, We really appreciate you coming on. Good luck, and take care of yourself and and the family.
1: Okay. Thank you. Appreciate being on.
0: Take care. Bye. Before we uh, move into our second segment, I just want to uh, bring you up to date and uh, remind you of another friend of our show, 50andbeyond.com. 50andbeyond.com is a content-based website for the baby boomer and senior populations. Uh, This comprehensive website covers a wide range of topics, including uh, health and wellness, uh, financial services, legal services, senior services, leisure, lifestyle services, as well as real estate and design services. And you can also find fascinating stories on the local, national or global stage. 50andBeyond.com is committed to connecting you with the most highly qualified and respected professionals in the greater Philadelphia and southern New Jersey region. And once you're on 50andbeyond.com, be sure to sign up for their informative newsletter. And you can also check out their community calendar for special events in our area. 50andbeyond.com also offers a free Ask the Expert page where you can ask your own personal questions on a wide range of topics and get those answers straight from these experts. And listen, if you hate sitting around and reading off a computer screen, don't worry because 50andbeyond.com has you covered Paired with the website, 50andbeyond.com also produces a free bi-monthly printed magazine distributed to over 200 area locations. The magazine is perfect for active adults on the go, and you can find it at your local supermarket, library, doctor's office, and many other business and religious organizations. And if you can't find a copy, download it directly from 50andbeyond.com or get a copy sent straight to you by emailing info, that's I-N-F-O, at 50andbeyond.com, 50andbeyond.com, which simplifies the lives of baby boomers and seniors. So log on today and find that information that matters to you. Welcome back to uh, our second segment um, on Boomer Generation Radio here on WWDB AM 860 and streaming live on WWDBAM.com. And again, a reminder that if you want to make a comment or a suggestion for the show, Radio at gmail.com. And a very important reminder that this portion of Boomer Generation Radio is being brought to you by Kendall a system of not-for-profit communities and services located in eight states in the Northeast, Mid-Atlantic, and near Midwest regions of the United States. Kendall advocates for and empowers older adults to reach their full potential and is committed to working with others to together transform the experience of aging. And to learn more about Kendall, that's K-E-N-D-A-L. We invite you to visit org, or call them toll-free at 888 888- 75901288887590128 and we are very pleased to welcome Mr. John Hook um trust and estate attorney partner at Stradley Ronan Stevens and Young. Did I get that right?
2: You got that right, Richard. Wow,
0: very very good. Thank you. Thank you. Uh-huh. So, um John, welcome to Boomer Generation Radio. We're, we want to talk a little bit about something that Comes up in conversation all the time amongst uh, my friends and, and I know in uh, conversation with other individuals in the financial world, this is a a topic of conversation that's growing in importance. Um, how do I, um, I want to do something. I want to do some good. Uh, I want to give some money uh make sure some money that I have is available to do good in the world, especially after I pass away, or even perhaps before I pass away right what's the best way to do this i, I you know i want let's our alma mater. I want to make sure that temple University you know is continues to be ranked in the top ten of basketball, so i want to give i want to give money to Temple University. Would you just sit down
2: and write them a check? Is that the easiest thing to do? Well, Richard, writing them a check is probably the easiest thing to do, but more it's more than the $25 that I, you know. <laughs> I'm sure they'll want more than the $25 also. Trust me, they <laughs> do. It, so the outright gift of the cash is probably the easiest, but it not, may not be the smartest way of making a gift to a charity. Um, if you think about it, then there's two times when you can be gifting to charity, as you were just mentioning. You can be gifting during your lifetime, or you can make gifts after death. And both of those will also um, involve an analysis of what's the better way to do it. So let's assume you wanted to make a gift during your lifetime. You were presuming a gift of cash. Well, I would look at, look at your, all of your asset holdings and say, well, maybe cash isn't the best thing. Maybe you have that, I don't know, an um, Exxon stock that you bought some years ago that it's now worth $10,000. You and you're looking to make a $10,000 gift to Temple. And they're really liking it right now. Right. Uh, so uh, the, the stock's worth 10000 but you bought it at $2,000. So if you turned around and sold the Exxon stock right now, you have an $8,000 gain if you sold it. As a result of an $8,000 gain, you're probably going to pay about $2,000 in, in taxes to both the federal government and, and Pennsylvania. On the other hand, what if you take the stock and instead of making a $10,000 gift of cash to Temple, you take the stock and you give the Exxon stock to Temple, you'll avoid that whole $8,000 capital gain and you'll get a $10,000 charitable deduction. So it's it's kind of a a win-win type of scenario for you in terms of you avoid the the gain issue and you still get your $10,000 charitable deduction that you were looking for. And and that's kind of a simple example, but it's a very effective one in terms of just deciding it was going to be ten thousand dollars that was gonna go out of your net worth in that example, and one asset was the better one than the other asset.
0: So that that means I could so that's a that that's that's stock transfer. Is that is that what it's called technically? Or am I not
2: that's right. It's just a stock transfer and almost all charities that I know of are more than happy to take a stock transfer. Normally, what they're going to do with it also, just realize, when the charity receives the stock, mm-hmm. they're probably going to sell it immediately. And they're going to realize that $10,000 of value that was in the stock. So from their perspective, they either have 10000 of cash in the cash gift right. or $10,000 of proceeds from the sale of the stock. At the end of the day, it's $10,000 to them. So right. it's they'll take either. And they're more than happy to work with you, to usually to try to get you to that better result.
0: So there's no liability to me. Tax wise, or any other way, wise ways, wise. If I do that,
2: there's that there's no tax liability if you're gifting the stock.
0: Okay, so I mean, there's a lot of uh, comment now about baby boom generation, our generation, really wanting to give back to society, wanted to do something. Um, so this is one, obviously, I guess it's a, very, a pretty simple way, assuming you have the stock to give.
2: That's right. That, that's a, a simple way of doing it. And you can, you can venture off into other assets, too. If you don't have stock, maybe you have a piece of real estate. And the piece of real estate is um, maybe it's being burdensome. Maybe it, it also has expenses associated with it, whether it's insurance or property taxes. And it's also been appreciated in value so that if you sell the real estate, there's a gain associated with that sale. Well, perhaps you choose the real estate instead to make the gift. Now, the real estate may be a larger value. We may be talking about bigger numbers. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, if you're looking to be generous and specifically charitable in this case, um, the, the real estate's another particularly interesting asset. That would be one, though, when we're looking at the charity, you really have to check with your charity with regard to real estate because some charities will accept and some will not and depending upon the type of real estate that it is that you're trying to give to the charity, they may not want it. I had I had I had the donor that wanted to give a um, a gas station to charity.
0: Right. Yeah. Yes, right. The, yeah, Twenty acres of swampland. Yeah. Right. It may not be the most desirable. And thing mine either. was
2: the proverbial Superfund site that the oh. that the, uh, the donor wanted to get rid of. Yeah. You
0: yeah, know, that's very uh, very generous of them. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I hope they weren't too insulted when the charity said no thanks. Uh, <laughs> no, I
2: think they understood why the charity said oh, okay. no thanks.
0: <laughs> yeah. uh, other th- so real estate, stock transfers, what, uh, and cash, what other uh, um, avenues, if I want to do something good while I'm alive, that you would suggest?
2: Well, think of, there's other things that you can do while you're alive where maybe you want to make a bigger gift, but you don't want to necessarily hamper yourself too much from... The perspective of your own cash flow. What if you have a life insurance policy? Say the life insurance policy is a face amount of $50,000 and maybe you're paying a premium, maybe you're not. Maybe it's a paid up policy. It's
0: not term life though.
2: Yeah, it's probably not term life. It's it probably life. has some type of, of permanent right. uh, mm-hmm. insurance where it has some cash value to it. Could be term, but let's assume for the sake of our example that it's a whole life policy. So mm-hmm. it has cash value it, and if its face amount is 50,000 but its cash value right now is 10,000 the likelihood while that life insurance policy is sitting in your drawer you're not doing anything with it you're not getting you're not getting any kind of dividend from it it's just sitting there what you could do is you can make a gift of the life insurance policy to the charity also and if the value if the Current value of the life insurance policy, the cash surrender value generally is what it's described as, is worth $10,000, but the death benefit is $50,000, the charity may hold on to it until your death and otherwise realize the $50,000. Or kill you. Uh, well, well <laughs> <laughs>
0: no, that, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. strike that
2: for the record. <laughs> <laughs> we'll hope that they won't do that. Please. But the other... the. Um, and there's two ways of doing that. You could just simply name the charity right. as the beneficiary. Right. But in naming the charity as the beneficiary, the advantage is, well, the disadvantage is you really don't get any charitable deduction up front, right? You've, you've named the charity as the beneficiary, but they're not going to get their 50000 until you pass away, which hopefully would be a long time away. Uh, so the disadvantage is there's no charitable deduction at that point. But the advantage is if you decide to change who the beneficiary is, you could change the beneficiary at any time. The other option is transfer the ownership of the policy to the charity today. And if the policy is worth $10,000, but has a face amount of 50000 the charitable deduction in giving that policy to the charity will be its current $10,000 value. So now the charity owns the, the policy. And to address your question and them potentially knocking you off, what you agree with the charity that you'll do instead is each year, You'll donate to them the amount of the premium. So maybe the, th- the policy has a $1,000 premium associated with it. You'll make a donation of $1,000 to the charity, get a charitable deduction for that premium amount, a deduction you're not getting today when you're owning the policy. So you, you, the, the charity now owns the $50,000 policy. Each year it needs to make a $1,000 premium payment. You donate to the charity the $1,000 each year. You get a charitable deduction. And so your your thousand is it really costing you a thousand dollar premium isn't, isn't costing you a thousand anymore it's costing you a thousand less the tax savings on that because of the charitable deduction that you're getting for it and finally at your at your demise the charity gets its fifty thousand dollars and you've had a charitable deduction up front and you've been getting a charitable deduction year by year so it's kind of a win win scenario both for the charity and to some extent for you as a donor because that asset really wasn't doing a whole lot for you.
0: So this may be a very simplistic question. Um, is there any difference in what in these three or four scenarios that you've described between giving those gifts while I'm living to um, the like t- university or American Cancer Society or my religious institution, my church or synagogue or mosque? Is there any difference in that, or are they all covered – in the same law, if that's the right word.
2: They they are all, all the ones that you just described are public charities. So as long as, and most charities, Richard, that you're going to encounter are public charities. The only, if you were to set up your own charity called a private foundation, Mm -hmm. we would have slightly different rules, but I wouldn't address that right now. I I really think that what most people are looking at, they're usually looking at making gifts to public charities. So all of our rules are going to be the same here. There's going to be no difference between who the recipient charity is.
0: Wow. Okay. That's lot, lots of really good information. And I hope some development officers of synagogues and churches are listening. So that's <laughs> really a good idea. I mean, we're, we're with Mr. John C. Hook, a uh, trust and estate attorney and uh, partner at uh, Stradley, Ronan, Stevens and Young here in Philadelphia. And I just want to remind you that this portion of Boomer Generation Radio is being brought to you by Kendall Outreach serving the field of aging by raising public awareness and advocacy around important issues of older adults. Through education, training, and implementation of comprehensive approaches to safe, individualized, long-term care practices, Kendall Outreach has been sharing Kendall's approach to quality care with consumers, advocates, providers, government agencies, and related organizations since 1989. And to learn more, once again, we remind you to visit kendall.org. That's K-E-N-D-A-L dot org. And then when you get there, click on outreach. That's Kendall dot org. Uh, back with Mr. John Hook talking about all this um, maze uh, for those of us who are uninitiated in this uh, of dealing with charitable giving and the desire to really want to do something good in the world and uh, make use of some assets. Uh the, the issues of um, trusts, uh, different type of trusts that I may want to set up. Um, had this conversation with financial advisors and also with uh, friends of mine who are thinking about, I want to make sure that my children and grandchildren are taken care of, and I don't want to have the majority of what I may have left uh, go to the government. So how do I do that? So what, what are some of the vehicles that... It, you know, you would be uh, um, dealing with a client who may say, Mr. Hook, I want to I have a pot of money. I want to make sure that my heirs are taken care of. What do I do?
2: Well, uh, commonly, the first thing you'll want to do is make sure that you have a will that otherwise disposes of, the, of those assets in a way that you want to have them disposed of. Can, can I make,
0: uh, sure. The will, we just take it uh, Take it for granted. Maybe that's the wrong thing. That most people have wills. Do, do most people have wills?
2: Richard, surprisingly, uh, whether we're talking about somebody who has a little money or a lot of money, I'm surprised constantly at how many people do not have wills. Really? I really am, and it I'm, it shocks that surprises me. Even, me even when I look at some wealthier individuals. And where you're talking about the tax savings that you're you're really alluding mm-hmm. to in your question. A lot of times that'll come where the uh, the individual is, is more wealthy, where we're looking at um, federal the federal estate tax. And let me get into that very briefly because I don't want to be overly confusing for anybody. The, um, the concerns that as a estate planning attorney that I have when I'm dealing with a client is how can I transfer their wealth? and pay the lowest amount of taxes possible. Right. Uh, that's where I add my value. Uh, otherwise, if, if the person just wants to give their assets to their three children and three equal shares, I don't know that I'm really adding a whole lot of value there. My question is, how can I do that in the most tax-efficient way so they're paying the lowest amount of taxes? And um, if we're looking at a client with assets less than $5 million, or a married couple of assets less than less than ten million dollars, the taxes really aren't going to be a big deal. It's it's where we get to the single client. Good news for me. Anyway. <laughs> Good news for me too. Um, the client that has the married couple has more than ten million dollars of assets. Their estate is going to be exposed to something called the federal estate tax. Right. And that tax kicks in at a rate of forty percent. That's four zero percent. Wow. So every dollar that they're trying to give to their children over the $10 million, every dollar that they're giving to the child, $0.60 cents goes to the child, and $0.40 cents goes to the IRS. So we're, that's where we're really looking at our tax savings when we get over $10 million. If we're below 10000000 million, we're really not necessarily looking at creating a lot of tax savings there. What we're really looking at is many times trying to protect the assets. And we'll do that through the use of, now we'll get back to your question, Mm -hmm. through the use of trust.
0: Okay. Could you define what a trust is?
2: Yeah, that's a great question because I think it's, um, it's it it appears to many people to be a complicated concept, but it's actually quite simple. It's really, many times there's a document and all the document is doing, the trust document is saying that the person, one person the grantor of the trust is putting property into the trust, and you have a trustee and a beneficiary of that trust. The trustee is the person who's responsible for taking care of the property, mm-hmm. and the beneficiary are the, the, the persons who will benefit from the property. And the rules for how those beneficiaries benefit are usually set forth in the trust document. So many times what, what, when you think of a trust, it's really just it's an account of money. So if, let's assume you wanted to create a trust, okay? okay and you were going to put um, $100,000 into the trust. You're the grantor, sometimes also called a settlor. So you put the 100000 into the trust. It's now out of your control. And let's assume you've named me as the trustee. I'm now responsible for taking care of that money for the benefit of, and we'll name the beneficiaries, and let's just assume beneficiaries are your children. So now my job is, I take care of the assets for the benefit of your your children until whatever the document says uh, or whatever time I may distribute to them, maybe when they reach certain ages, like the ages of popular ages or the ages like 25, 30, and 35, we distribute out to them. Sometimes, though, the reason that we create the trust for this type of situation is uh, we may have minor children so that we're putting the assets in the trust because the children are too young. They just, they're not financially able to handle the money anymore. On the other hand, sometimes, so there when the child reaches a particular age, like the age of 25 or 30 or 35, we presume that they've reached an age where they will be financially capable of handling the money. So the trust says or tells to the trustee, who would be me here, distribute the money when the child reaches the age of 35 or distribute their share of the money. Uh, And that's the end of the trust. So the, the trust is all over. On the other hand, if we have a child who is an adult and is either financially incapable of taking control of their own money or we're worried that they can't control it, we may just say to the trustee, trustee, you keep the money until the for this child's entire life and just pay them the income from the money mm-hmm. so that you're looking over it to make sure that pot of money is always there for them. And the child is always going to be the one that benefits from it. So it's what I would call an asset protection device. The the trust is protecting the assets from bad decisions that the child may make.
0: Are there different types
2: of trusts? There are different types of trusts, And I'm setting up pretty much just a a simple, straightforward, um, uh, non-charitable trust in what I just described to you. Uh, tried to make it as uh, simple as possible right. in terms of its its provisions. You can make these types of trusts a lot more complicated. Um, you could have the trust, for example, you could have the trust continue for your children's generation and never distribute out to them. So at their deaths, it just continues to their grandchildren or to your grandchildren, your right. right? Their children, your grandchildren. Mm-hmm and continue to hold the trust in the assets in trust for the grandchildren's lifetimes. And at their deaths, distribute to the great-grandchildren. Wow. A trust like that is called a dynasty trust. And unfortunately, guys like me and the trust and estates attorneys, we put all these fancy labels on these types of trusts. Um, and I think many times it ends up confusing our clients. Uh, I, I like to instead describe exactly as I just did what the trust is actually doing because the description many times is a lot easier to understand than these um, ambiguous descriptions that we give to our trusts
0: so we're starting to wind down uh, uh, time wise so there's one other term that I think you deal with um, that i I'm, I'm going to ask you if to to hopefully give us some explanation of it because a lot of boomers uh, may be working with their older older parents their parents their finances may be running down there's this huge fear of you know people outliving their money um uh, somebody will say well let's talk about developing an annuity so could could you just explain to me what an annuity is and how that fits into what we're talking about
2: okay there's there's two types of annuities there is a just a uh, well there's let well, I me mean, i go back there's actually probably three types of annuities that i could describe to you there's the non-charitable annuity. So this is where the person that wants to create the annuity, the parent, is going to, usually to an insurance company, and, and giving the insurance company a sum of money, say the sum of money, go back to my $100,000, okay. giving the insurance company a sum of money in, a, in exchange for an annuity contract. And there can be two types of annuity contracts, a variable annuity or a fixed annuity. A fixed annuity is the simple one. The the in the fixed annuity, the the, the parent gives 100,000 to the commer- to the insurance company and the insurance company promises to pay to the parent a certain amount of money for the, each year for the rest of the parent's life. And maybe the amount of money would be $8,000 a year for the uh the parent's life. And let's assume the parent is 80 years old. Mm-hmm. That might be a reasonable uh calculation. And and that's how easy it is. There's nothing more involved with that, but just recognize when the parent dies, there's nothing coming back to the children. Right. So it's it could be a good deal if the parent lives a nice long life uh, and now the insurance company has to pay a lot more back than a hundred thousand, or it could be a bad deal if the parent dies in the next year because they didn't right. get anything back. Right. The other type of annuity is a variable annuity. And variable annuities are they tend to be latent with fees. And they really are one that that you have to think long and hard before getting involved with that is that would be one that um i I generally am not i 'm not one that 's otherwise recommending as a trust in the state's attorney. Mm-hmm. Let me jump over though there's there 's a third type of annuity and it 'll wrap up with regard to where we started in terms of gifts to charity what an individual could do with that 100000 is instead of entering into an annuity contract with an insurance company, they can go to their favorite charity, say Temple University, and they can take that 100000 to Temple and say to Temple University, I'll give you the 100000 if you promise to pay me a sum of money for the rest of my life, this fixed sum of money. And now Temple University will say, that's a good deal for us. We will take your 100000 and we will pay you X amount, and normally that amount that they're going to pay is based upon a schedule that we have. If, for example, according to this schedule, if the individual uh, was 76 years old uh, and the amount that they, the temple would pay back to them would be approximately, or I don't know a temple would, but a charity following the schedule would, would pay back would be $6,000 or 6%. So the the advantage of doing it with a charity is there's a charitable deduction immediately up front with regard to that gift to the charity of $100,000 that not only does the individual get to $6,000 a year back, but they also get a charitable deduction on day one when they create the annuity.
0: So it's another way of, of doing good, quote unquote.
2: Doing good and getting something back at the same time. Mr. It's John a-
0: Hook, uh, attorney and partner at Stradley, Ronan, um, Stevens & Young here in Philadelphia, Trust and estate attorney. I want to thank you for really a lot of information, uh, sort of like an introduction to uh, trust and it's, and estate planning 101. So thank you very, very much. And a reminder to all of you uh, that this portion of Boomer Generation Radio has been brought to you by uh, Kendall, the system of non-for-profit communities and services advocating for and empowering older adults to reach their full potential. Uh, Together, Transforming the Experience of Aging. And a reminder to please get a hold of Kendall at kendall.org or their toll-free number at 888-759-0128. Thank you, Mr. Hook. Thank you again. Thank you, Richard. Take care. uh, For all of you, have a great week. Thank you, Tony. Uh, Stay dry here in Philadelphia next couple of days. And we'll see you next week on Boomer Generation Radio.